you add an incentive, which is not dissimilar to how the Bitcoin network works. You add networks of people doing a collective action, but you add it actually to the real world. We basically developed a currency that is backed by blockchain that rewards the actions around sustainable and renewable energy. This is Energy Cast, and I'm Jay Downhower. Today we are talking about blockchain technology and how it is being used to cross borders to create a truly global carbon market. I'm going to try to take this slow because we're discussing two concepts that aren't the simplest to grasp. And one of the things I tell all my guests is I want this show to be accessible to everyone, not just Wharton MBAs who work on Wall Street. Let's talk about blockchain first. You are probably most familiar with Bitcoin, a cryptocurrency that essentially exists online. Bitcoin is not managed by any Federal Reserve or nation and is certainly not backed by gold or silver. And partly because of that, its exchange rate has fluctuated from a record high of $20,000 to $6,500 in less than a year. I've read countless articles on blockchains and how they work in The Economist over the years, and I have never been too clear on how it actually works. For instance, if there's no central record, where is all the data recorded that would have to theoretically document billions of transactions around the world. According to Statista.com, the Bitcoin blockchain file was 173 gigabytes at the end of Q2 2018. It was 9 gigabytes when I got married four years ago. So does that mean everyone needs a huge hard drive to store the Bitcoin file in order to participate in the system? I don't know, and for the sake of this discussion, I don't care. The point is, is that blockchain is set up so that if everyone has a copy of the file, it belongs to both everyone and no one. It's theoretically tamper-proof. Our guest today is using the underlying blockchain technology to create a global ledger for reporting energy technologies that either produce or don't produce carbon dioxide, creating a marketplace between the producers, bad, and the non-producers, good. We've talked about the marketplace for carbon and efforts to offset CO2 production on this program in the past. I don't belabor the issue too much because I like talking more about energy production a lot more than I like talking about climate change. However, this is a cool idea because there are a lot of efforts around the world to produce renewable or carbon-free energy, and not every part of the world has put a value on CO2. I'll post a map online, but the largest carbon market is, of course, the European Union, which has the emissions trading system and has been operating the longest since 2005. Most other schemes are scattershot across the globe. In the United States, which has entertained a scheme depending on who's president, a few states have created their own carbon markets, California, Massachusetts, and Washington State. My guest today acknowledges that any large worldwide carbon enforcement would be difficult to organize, and we joke that a global body taxing human activity would be a libertarian's worst nightmare. That's why a blockchain with its inherently non-centralized design, yet its ability to transcend borders might be the perfect solution for a globally organized method of reducing and monetizing carbon.
Our guest today is Evan Karen, CEO of Switch.io, a blockchain-based platform that tracks worldwide CO2 and energy sustainability efforts. Switch is based in Austin and is a project of the Token Commons Foundation, a nonprofit. Switch is about to release an app at the end of October to help show off its platform, but they insist the core product is not the app, but rather the backbone by which individuals, governments, and yes, utilities can report and help grow the blockchain into a living and sustainable exchange for reducing carbon emissions. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Evan Karen. We're here with Evan Karen, CEO of Switch.io. And Evan, a lot of my friends have been curious about this episode. Help us understand in the simplest way you can what exactly a blockchain is. Great, and Jay, thank you for having me on the show today, and I'm excited to be speaking to the listeners, and it's a real pleasure. In the simplest form, blockchain is a technology that allows for transactions to exist in a ledger where multiple people and multiple counterparties can write to it. And it's not centralized, right? As we understand it, Bitcoin, they don't even know who the founder was or how it got started, right? Yeah, blockchain history goes back before the Bitcoin blockchain. In 2008, post the financial crisis, there was a major distrust in in the governments at the time, right? We've had a major financial crisis. We had too big to fail. And so a pseudonym, Satoshi Nakamoto, which is the credited founder of Bitcoin, wrote a very small, short white paper where he goes and identifies a need for a decentralized distributed network that is secured by computers or algorithms that no one can mess with, no one can hack, no one single party can control. Over the last 10 years, the the idea has evolved and morphed from decentralized into a secure ledger, a secure record, potentially a store of value. And that's why the crypto market has kind of exploded is that the world, their eyes have been opened into new forms of value transfer and value exchange. And I think a lot of traditional enterprises like IBM, Intel, Microsoft, Oracle, and all the banks as well, they have all invested some form of their funding into identifying whether blockchain technology has a use case and application inside traditional enterprises. Hopefully that makes sense. Oh, it certainly does. And cryptocurrencies, these blockchain technologies all have their champions, but one person who wasn't very into it was Warren Buffett. He made a lot of news last May when he called Bitcoin specifically rat poison squared. Now look, Warren is a smart guy or at least very successful at making money. So what does he not understand about blockchains and why should we put more faith in this technology, you think? I think if you asked him whether he thought blockchain technology was valuable, I think the answer would be way different. Bitcoin as rat poison squared to Warren Buffett, who spent his entire life finding intrinsic value in businesses and people and economies and ecosystems, it would make sense to say, what am I buying? I'm buying a share of a system that to him has no real value versus a stock or a mine or a railroad. Those couldn't be two different things. You can't touch a Bitcoin. Crypto markets are a bit more esoteric. He is going to be on the opposite end of the spectrum as someone like Tim Draper, who's been involved in emerging technologies for his whole career and understands the power of the technology and what it can actually mean. You've got very smart people on both sides of the equation around the currency value, but I think that most people can assume that the blockchain technology that backs the currency, it's hard to argue with the value of that. You know, Evan, I'm thinking just as you're talking, you got to think about 
about how wild that was when the internet first came out and you'd buy things over the internet. Now people do it every day. Your grandmother does that. So yes, I'm yes. curious, what do you think it's going to take or at what point would you say cryptocurrency have arrived where grandmothers are buying things with Bitcoin? What do you think that's going to take? I think the current marketplaces that exist now, they're too volatile for the traditional grandmas or Mr. and Mrs. 401k to participate in. Why would grandma use that to buy a loaf of bread? We need to have a stabilizing force in cryptocurrency in order for you to get mainstream adoption. We're going to need to see like credit card companies accepting digital currency instead of fiat currency for transactions. And we're going to need to see a large enough network of vendors and marketplace participants that are willing to assign a value to it as a medium of exchange without incredible volatility. However, if all hell breaks loose and we get a depression, global financial crisis, you could see mainstream adoption of cryptocurrency happen much quicker. Getting to Switch, and Switch is not a cryptocurrency, it's a blockchain technology. So explain how Switch is different from something like a Bitcoin. The major differences of Switch is that Switch is not intended to be a currency in and of itself. It's intended to be a standard unit of measure and a potential store of value. We consider Switch as a cooperative currency, which is backed by and awarded to individuals who take action in a much larger problem outside of cryptocurrency. They take action in their ability to affect how their behavior affects the climate. And so about a year and a half ago, we recognized that the digital assets are here, that the technology that backs them has the ability to break down barriers of finance to potentially look at reducing friction in adoption. And at the same time, we recognized that there was a world of opportunity in being able to award people for doing the right thing for what we call pro-social behavior, as well as get paid to do it. We basically developed a currency that is backed by blockchain that towards the actions around sustainable and renewable energy. When you're talking about affecting the climate, we've talked about this back in episode eight. We talked a lot about carbon offsets. So is this basically a blockchain for carbon offsets? It is. I don't want to oversimplify it and just say that. But yes, I think when you boil it down to what we're trying to accomplish is that we recognize that there is a technology that can be used in order to increase the effectiveness of carbon programs and other offset programs that exist today, but do it in a way that is more inclusive, that includes all the assets across the planet not just ones that are participating in programs like California. As an example, Texas doesn't have a carbon market. You know, the second largest state in the country doesn't have a carbon market. This is a way for us to level the playing field and have the ability for everyone to contribute and participate. And you know, Evan, it seems like Switch is kind of filling in a niche that, look, there is no global regulatory carbon authority. I think most libertarians are probably happy to hear that. But (laughs) but this is a way to bridge all of that because there is some in California, there is a scheme in Europe, a couple different other places. I'll put up a map of who has what. But this is really filling in that need, right? That in order for you to do something about carbon globally, it's one big Gaia, right? We all need to participate. So this is what that's trying to accomplish. You don't need a world regulatory body. You could have this. Yeah. Politics aside, if you're waiting for the governments of the world (laughs) to take action, it's going to be too late. There's way too many competing opinions from elected officials, but there is a world momentum that understands that if we don't do something, that we're going to be in a worse place than we are now. And most people have a really hard time understanding multi-generational issues. Didn't start with us, but we have the ability and the technology to fix it now. And they call it these bottom-up self-organizing systems. If you look at behavioral economics, they have this theoretical 
fundamental problem of the prisoner's dilemma. Climate can be applied to that structure. Let's say you represent the Northern Hemisphere and I represent the Southern Hemisphere, and I decide to do nothing, and you decide to spend all this money and time and energy and effort reducing climate change and spending effort on reducing pollution. You spend all this time and energy and I just get way ahead of you, right? I win, but I'm doing something that is detrimental to the cooperative. And so how do we create a situation where we're all incentivized to act in the best interest of the cooperative? But what's really interesting about where we are in the world right now is that you have corporate leaders that are actually going out and saying, you know what? I don't care that it's not required from the state to purchase carbon offsets. I'm going to do it because not only is it right to the world and humanity, but it actually solves a major problem for us. The shareholders want it. And from an economic standpoint, it's actually going to save us money over time. Being more sustainable, if you can get the math to work, then investing in renewable and sustainable energy actually makes sense. We're building technology to enable those companies to operate in a way where it's more transparent, the traceability is there, and we're able to take externalities that are hard to quantify and grasp and put them right in the front page, if that makes sense. Evan, we always hear that there needs to be a carbon tax or a price on carbon. I kind of want to get into your business model. Are you employing some sort of carbon tax or are the financial setup where it's not just a punitive putting yeah. your thumb on things that generate carbon? Yeah, and I think the thing is it's got to work in both directions. It's got to work in what people are willing to do to reduce carbon and what people are doing to produce carbon. We're not a authority on what a carbon tax should be, but we're building the technology to enable carbon to be valued, assigning a value to how much carbon is actually going to be generated from a specific asset so that if there was a carbon tax or program or charge, then you could assign a value to what that action or behavior is worth. We're building the protocols to allow for that to exist because right now it doesn't exist. How can I assign a carbon value to a power plant in India when I have no ability to standardize how it's being recorded, who's being charged for it? We're building that infrastructure so that the technology can enable that cooperation across multiple stakeholders, territories. That's our business model. We're an open source protocol to enable that future. And so your interface with people, as I understand it, is like a smartphone app. Yeah, we have dashboards. But if you think about the early days of the internet, you couldn't have e-commerce without protocols to enable e-commerce. So we are very much focused on the underlying protocols. And yes, we are building user experiences to be able to showcase what the technology can actually enable. The goal for blockchain is actually to have the third party developers and utilities and cities and communities to go out and basically build their own kind of use it as they need it. We're building open source technology to enable the world to value carbon and value information around carbon. I think I was told that you had an app that was going live this month. Is that Yes, we do. So the world needs to see something. Actually, it's at the end of October. We will be issuing our first version application, both iOS and Android, as well as a web application that will allow users, end users, utilities, industrial customers to onboard assets, to onboard IoT devices, start streaming information into the network and start participating in being part of the solution. This is where I remember when I did my first episode, one of my mentors said, you know, if it were video, it would be so much better. And ever since then, I've really tried to gear this program toward the podcast format. And this is where we come up a little bit short and I'll put all this up on the website. But for our podcast listeners, what does the interface look like to someone who's trying to say report whatever they've got that can help with carbon? It's a very 
similar interface to a lot of technology that exists. It is supposed to be user-friendly from a user experience standpoint, but think about heat maps uh, and think about charts. So it's got a user administration so that you can log and register your rooftop solar panel, or if you're a larger industrial customer, register your asset on the network. So there's a level of asset registration and identification. So then now you're a member of the network. There are flows of information that you can see. So similar to if you have a nest at home, you can see how much energy you're using every day. It's not dissimilar to that. The idea is if it's a homeowner and they're turning their air conditioning on at 7 a.m., we want to showcase that you just generated a carbon debit of one ton. Not charging them, but giving people a better idea and more transparency of information. As you move on, if you're actually going and reducing carbon, like a solar system on your house, you're able to see what you're earning. So an income, you're getting a bank account of switch tokens that you're generating for reducing carbon from the atmosphere and producing more renewable and clean energy. From a visual standpoint, it's all based on whether you're a creditor or you're a debitor. The entire ecosystem is set up so that you can understand what the other network is doing, what your local community is doing, what your city is doing, and then things are going to be built from there. Anything that we can do to add modules so that renewable energy can be invested in, those are things that are going to be added to the dashboard, we're calling it, or application over time. I was walking back from lunch today with some co-workers you know some of them we were going to have this interview and all they wanted to know was how are you guys and by extension your customers who are using this app how are you guys monetizing this how do you make money we're set up as a nonprofit foundation we are both looking at deploying technology and building technology there's earned income strategies for foundations we're donation based as well there is a token that gets generated and part of the token has a treasury function every token that gets generated a small portion goes to fund future development of the foundation. To the extent that the network grows in a way where the token becomes more valuable as the network grows and scales and the adoption scales, there is a earned income strategy there. As well, foundations have earned income strategies in terms of partnerships with utilities as a technology partner, partnerships with investment funds that are actually investing in projects. We are not a competitive entity. We are a cooperative entity and we are set up as an NGO. You're making these tokens, so I take it it's going to be like CAP and trade where someone would buy these tokens? Is that the idea? No, we're not doing a cap and trade because the cap and trade marketplaces actually create perverse incentives. <laughs> and so let's just assume that you need a, I don't want to use the word license, but let's say you're a community solar owner in coal country. You are the only solar project in a land of coal. And there are companies in the region that want to be 100% renewable, like the data center, a school district. And you are the only one that can generate carbon offsets because every megawatt that you generate reduces a megawatt of coal. If the local school district wants to buy carbon offsets because they want to be green, you own the rights to your carbon offset and you sell them directly to the school district. That is how we anticipate the value exchange. So we're facilitating through the technology, the ability to exchange value. Yeah, and that's great. You have a marketplace. Now, the last part of that is why would the school district, unless they're being compelled to, why would they want to buy an offset? Well, that's why is anyone buying offsets, right? If there's a regulatory reason to do it, great. But there's a fairly large voluntary market that exists now. Lyft just bought millions upon millions of dollars of voluntary offsets. No one told Lyft they needed to do it. We're moving into a world world where we want green power. And so to the extent that I can contribute to renewable energy projects, it's almost a win-win scenario. One of the major upside cases is that if 
a local government or a city or a state requires energy to be purchased from renewables, we want Switch's accounting system to be the statement of record. And if that happens, then the value of the ecosystem becomes extremely clear. We're just making a marketplace here, folks. So Evan, I love the idea that you can make it as simple as you can use an app to make carbon offsets easier to report. But I think the big question out there is how do you verify these offsets? Who's keeping people honest? I didn't mention this earlier in the podcast, but I will now. Trust in information has intrinsic value. The current marketplaces that exist now around renewable energy and renewable energy tracking are done in two different ways, third-party audit and self-attestation. There's levels of trust associated with that. Now, if I'm a trustworthy person, the risk of me lying is very low and who cares? The idea around switch and the idea around blockchain in general is that if you can get down to the device level and you can validate the information coming from a device, pulling the information directly from a solar panel. And if you can prove that, then you do not have to worry about fraud, double counting, and not trusting the information. The approach is not to have an app where I just type in what my thermostat was, but it's linking the IoT device, which is Internet of Things, mm-hmm. or the smart meter that the utility installed in your home five or seven years ago to just report to a network. Itself. Yeah. Report itself. Exactly yeah. right. And to the extent that there are bad actors, the goal is that as the network grows, it's able to identify the errant behavior. They call them slashing conditions. That's the approach. Look, Evan, I'm a fan of big baseload generation. How are carbon-free generation sources like nuclear or large hydroelectric handled in this scheme? Yeah, so they don't produce carbon. However, we will still assign a carbon value to every energy megawatt that's generated for those assets. In some marketplaces, they don't actually count them, and some they do. We need to count them because without them, if the nukes went away, we need more coal. We need more natural gas. So you can't just completely discount them. The goal is to incentivize rapid adoption of new technology. So you can't give a nuclear facility the same value as what you'd want to give a brand new solar farm. So there's ideas of vintages. Mm-hmm. There's ideas of certain markets that need flexible generation. When you look at creating incentives for certain systems, you have to look at the current system and you have to look at the future state of what you want the system to look like to the extent that the system needs grid resiliency and needs baseload power. You can't just say, oh, you know what, coal, nuclear, and hydro, you're out because you don't fit the mold of solar and wind. That doesn't work. No. You have to value all assets based on their asset type and what you're trying to accomplish for the grid. If you just ran a calculation and said, I want to be 100% carbon neutral, you're going to blow up your grid. We don't have enough battery to get us there. We don't have enough solar to get us there. It won't work. We want to solve the carbon problem. So anyone who's contributing to the problem is going to be identified, and everyone who's preventing the problem is going to be rewarded. That is the current approach. Sure. And more on utilities, I assume you would have to be incorporating what they're doing. One of the things that comes to mind is coal-powered plants that are being retrofitted for natural gas. Now they're still producing CO2. They won't be producing as much, right? So that's, you know, that's definitely a net negative. So tell me a little bit what your plans are for working with big utilities, as well as me and my house putting solar panels on my roof. The idea is that you actually have to simulate the state of the network. When you move a coal plant to a natural gas plant and there's a net benefit, that benefit is going to be rewarded to the asset. The model is able to identify the previous state and the current state and reward 
from there. The other thing is that when we're talking about trying to create clean, carbon-free energy, the flip sides of that are if people bring up the reliability issue, but there's also the cost issue. We all want the cleanest energy possible, but we also want people who make under $100,000 a year to be able to pay their electric bill. So is there a way to weigh the affordability of renewable energy generation against other efforts that are maybe less affordable in this scheme? So are you rewarding efforts that are creating more affordable carbon-free energy? energy than other more expensive renewable or carbon-free energy. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I, you know, I think, you know, again, we can only record what we can see. We can only award or incentivize what we can record to the extent that there are technologies that exist like flywheel technologies or demand response. Someone who doesn't make $100,000 a year can very easily turn their air conditioner up to 80 in the summer. Now, I'm not saying they want to, but if they want to participate in this carbon-free future, everyone's got to do their part. That's the type of world we want to live in. We want it to be inclusive. If a technology is too expensive, it won't get adopted. We don't favor and we do not want to favor one technology versus another. We want the incentives to be dynamic enough that it can reward different technology in different types of markets because what works in Texas doesn't work in the Northeast. That's why we're not creating a carbon program. We're creating a technology that enables carbon to be valued, that's able to understand the complexities of local market conditions and allow them to participate in a global community. Hopefully that makes some sense. Absolutely. It sure does. And good luck with everything and good luck with the app. We're going to finish up with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies. And, you know, as we go through these and some are carbon free and some aren't, maybe say how you think these fit into the mix. And even if they make a little bit of carbon, maybe you have some ideas about how they can. Okay. Starting with natural gas. Bridge fuel. Crude oil. Peak oil. Nuclear. Small fission. Salt thorium. Potential. Yeah, I like the thorium too. Coal. Done. <laughs> Wind. Interesting, problematic in most places. Combined with batteries, love it. Solar. Distributed energy, community solar, solar on every roof. Combined with batteries, love it. Biofuels. At scale, works, great. Let's use all the algae we can. <laughs> Hydroelectric. Micro hydro, reclaim water, pump storage, love it. Geothermal. Let's drill. That's all the drilling resources for oil should go into geothermal. Yeah, I'm down with that too. Energy storage. 100% necessity to get to carbon-free future. Absolutely. Electric vehicles. Distributed portable battery solutions. Incredible. Energy efficiency. Must have. Easy. Low-hanging fruit. And then finally, nuclear fusion. Let's make it work. I don't know. I don't want to create a black hole or anything, but yeah, let's make it work. <laughs> hey, for listeners out there and guests in the future, that is how it's done, my friends. Evan Karen, Twitch.io, thank you so much for your time. Great being here and I'd love to be on the show again. You bet. That was Evan Karen, CEO of Switch.io, a blockchain-based carbon reporting company based in Austin, Texas. Evan spent several years in both New York and Houston working in energy futures. He and his partners have nearly a half century in energy markets and finance experience. I'll be sure to have links to their platform online at energy-cast.com and on Instagram at Host Energy. Special thanks to Evan for his time and Jennifer Hansen at 43PR in Santa Cruz, California for reaching out to me in setting this up. One of the thrills of doing this show is being contacted with show ideas, which I try to accommodate as much as possible, especially when the guests and topics are as great as this. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 42. I teased this a few weeks ago, but this time it's coming. Be sure to join us next week when we explore the untapped potential of a technology that's been around since medieval times. 
Until then, I'm Jay Dauenhauer. We'll see you next time.